listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another week of Best Served Cold, the what? true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. And I'm very pleased to announce that this week we are actually drinking wine. It's cool to our roots, you know. We're going old school We're going here. old school. I don't know. It was just one of those weeks where it's like, you know, come on, we, I just need a glass of wine. We realized we actually, we've been on the cocktails and we actually haven't had wine for like a really long time. Yeah. And it's all fun so. having cocktails and everything, but sometimes it's just like. Yeah, I just want a nice glass of wine. Yes. But I'm Laura. I'm one of your co-hosts of this excellent show. And I'm the sleep paralysis demon that lives in the corner of your bedroom. And I am Tama J. If an encyclopedic knowledge of cocktails could kill, I would be Australia's most wanted criminal. Wow, that was suave. Thank you. I liked it. I liked it a lot. It was like a, a good mixture of... On the, on the nose humor, bit yeah. of improv, keeping it uh topical. Yeah, I exactly. Like it. Yeah. Um, we've also <laughs> not. <laughs> You're right. There. <laughs> oh my god! Tom just like inhaled his wine and is nearly you dying. You know when you like goes on the wrong. <laughs> Holy shit! I almost I thought you were died. laughing at something I said, but I was like, I no. didn't say anything funny. I know no, I'm I hilarious, just, I but decided to breathe my wine in instead of drinking. Why it. not? Who needs to drink when you can just inhale it straight into your lungs? God, that was terrifying. Something life flashed before my eyes. So, not that you can see this because this is an audio platform, but we record in a separate room and we normally have the door closed to keep our three cats out. But in the last two weeks, I've had like so many people message me and say that they miss the cats and them interrupting the episode. So, the door's open. So... Who knows what will happen. If you have listened to our very first episode, there's like five minutes of dead air where you can just hear me chasing a kitten around in the background. That's been... That's... No, it hasn't. I listened to the episode the other day. It's still there. Oh, is it? I yeah. I swear to God, I fixed it. There's that like up. five minutes of dead air where you can hear me going, Paige, stop it! Oh, God. <laughs> and someone was like, I miss the kitties interrupting. And I was like, okay, Why? well... <laughs> We give the people what they want. Sure, yeah. I mean, we can make the show less professional for you if you. It's a lot so easier desire. for us. Yeah. Let's be real. Let's be real. Yeah. How's your week been, Tama? It's been it's been all right. Uh, it hasn't been the best uh, best week for me. Um, just some uh, personal yeah. things that I'm going through. Uh, just you know, been a bit of a some, shitty year. Yeah, and it's kind of one some, of those. Uh, Friends of yeah. Anyway, yeah. we won't get into that. Yeah, I don't really want to get into it. But well, um, that's why I said we won't. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but um, I mean, apart from that, uh, it's been nice. We got we, uh, a couple of our friends have moved up to Sydney now. Uh, our best friends got engaged. Yeah, our best friends got engaged. That's very exciting. So we're having celebrations that. on the weekend. I had what is possibly the worst sleep I've ever had in my entire life on Monday night, which I just feel like just kind of set the week that I haven't caught up since Monday and I've just kind of felt perpetually tired. Yeah, it's kind of like snowboard down through the week. But, you know, weekend's coming. We'll get some good sleep. Yep, 
and then be restored for next week. Fingers fucking crossed. We should have our new merch should be ready by next week. I'm working on it this weekend. So stay tuned. Yeah, we're a two-person team. Yeah. Well, yeah. What? One and a half. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Classic. Well, I mean, to be fair, I am the graphic designer in the in this relationship, yeah, so it wouldn't make how... much sense for you to try and design the merch for us. I could us, make so. shit on MS Paint for you if you really want. Oh my God, can you though? Yeah, that would yeah, actually yeah, be yeah, amazing. Right. <laughs> sure. Done. Easy. Just some really shitty clip art Yeah, I'll use the fill MS tool and I'll do like that little jagged thing where you like add different colors yes, to Yes, amazing. I can see it now. And I'll do best BSC. Love it. Yeah. Well, I don't really Beautiful. have any other housekeeping. We've received some positive feedback from people who said they liked us keeping the intros short and sweet and then having a bit of a banter at the end. Yep. So we're going to keep trying to do that. So if you don't have anything else to say, I don't have anything else to say. No, I, I think apart from that, I just uh, am grateful that we have people who actually genuinely stick around to the end of the show and um, who want to rather so hear. Would rather want to hear still the banner so at the end. It's... That people actually listen to this shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Uh, thank you to the people who got the code word for last yes. episode. Um, we will give you a little shout out at the end. At the end. So it's my turn to go first this time. And I'm doing a rather topical story this week because I believe I'm honestly, I didn't look up the countries that this series has been released in, but I know it's been released in Australia and America and the UK, which is Des, which is the mini docu-series about uh, Dennis Nielsen. I had a brain fart and forgot <laughs> his name then for a second. Dennis Nielsen, um, he was a... Scottish serial killer that killed in England for several years and they've made a very good docu-series about his less about his crimes and more about his arrest and his trial and all that and his confessional and all that sort of stuff and David Tennant plays Nielsen and does a fantastic job we have watched one of the episodes so far and I was incredibly impressed at how well he portrays Nielsen right down to just his mannerisms and his facial expressions are just so spot on. Like you look at photos of them side by side and it's like, it's, it's like the straight same up. person. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much like it's out of an episode of Mindhunter. Yeah. So today I'm going to be talking about Scottish serial killer and necrophile Dennis Nielsen, aka the Muswell Hill murderer or the kindly killer. And just to clarify, he was Scottish, but his murders occurred in London because I don't want anyone to come for me and was like, he was a London killer. He was Scottish. He killed in London. Mm -hmm. So his victims were Stephen Dean Holmes, Kenneth Ockenden, Martin Duffy, Billy Sutherland, Malcolm Barlow, John Howlett, Graham Allen, and Stephen Sinclair, as well as seven other men who sadly have never been identified to this day. So Nielsen was born in Stricken, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in November 1945. His parents were married at the time of his birth, however, divorced shortly after when he was four years old, potentially, I would assume, due to his father's intense alcoholism. So originally his mother remarried and he was sent to live with his grandparents, but after a couple of years returned to living with his mother. 
During his time living with his grandparents, Nielsen became very close to his grandfather, Andrew White, and claims that one of the defining traumatic events of his life was when his grandfather died. His grandfather was a strict Catholic, but Nielsen and him developed a very close relationship while he lived with them and would often go walking together for hours talking about Andrew's one true love, the sea. And this is ultimately how Andrew died, being found in his fishing boat dead on Halloween in 1951. Wow. So due to their strict Catholic beliefs, Nielsen was forced to view the body before its burial. Nielsen was six at the time and was told that his grandfather was just sleeping, but Nielsen has been quoted as saying that this is one of his most vivid memories from his childhood, and it's possible that this exposure to death and a corpse at such a young age potentially triggered some of what he did in later years. But aside from this, Nielsen's early childhood is really largely normal no real traumatic events no terrible relationships with close family members which i think is what interests people so much about him because there's not real like a real kind of thing that you look at and you go oh that was the trigger point because i guess a lot of it a lot of what we talk about is nature versus nurture so when you take out the nurture and you're left with just someone who is potentially born Evil. That's what's fascinating about him as a human being in terms of the psychology of what he did. Yeah, and is... any of the police that interviewed him, any journalists that interviewed him are all quoted as saying that he, they were all struck by just how normal he was. Yeah, it's just so weird. How average, there was nothing about him that really stood out as that kind of... Oh, it's really hard to, I guess, X factor is not the right word because that sounds weirdly positive. But that thing that makes someone, yeah, signature or the thing that makes you kind of go, oh, that's the reason that you managed to get it. You know, that like charismatic personality or something. I guess the closest thing you could link him to would be Ed Kemper. But even then it's like... Yeah, he's very quiet and kind of introverted. Yeah, even then But incredibly narcissistic. So all throughout school, Nielsen was quiet and introverted, which eventually led to him leaving school and joining the army at age 15. So initially, when he joins, he spends three years undergoing training and actually sort of blossoms and thrives within the framework of A, being part of a team and not feeling like the loser outsider, but also the scheduling and the rigid physical training also seemed to be very good for him. However, he does find that during his time, he becomes sexually attracted to many of his army comrades which obviously at this time in um, the early 60s is still very taboo Mm. and still up until 1967, still illegal in England. So after his training, Nielsen chooses his, I guess, his specialty trade and joins the catering arm of the army, which is where he learns to butcher. So his time in the army is actually fairly happy. He's popular. He has loads of friends. However, this is when he does develop a heavy casual use of alcohol. While serving time in the Middle East, this is where his homosexual tendencies, as well as his particular fascination with death and corpses, blossoms. Although he has to keep both of these completely under wraps. Because as I said, it's very obviously you can't tell people you're attracted to corpses, but also it was very taboo to be gay. Mm -hmm. So his Absolutely. career in the army is largely uneventful and he actually lasts for just over 11 years when wow. he finally leaves largely due to the 
politics in Northern Ireland, which is where he was stationed at the time, because especially in Northern Ireland, that was a really big thing for um, gay people. And I could be wrong about this, but I believe it's still not legal to get married. Well, it was only just le- I think I think it was only just legalized that you could um, have an abortion in Ireland, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think very they slow to the certain things. Yeah. So after leaving the army, he returns home where he temporarily moves in with his mother and stepfather. So in 1972, Nielsen enrolls with the police force with the hopes that he can sort of rekindle that feeling of friendship and camaraderie that he felt in the army. However, he shortly has to quit after coming across a same-sex couple having intercourse in their car, which at the time he would have been required to arrest them as it was a felony to have homosexual sex in public. So he realizes that working this job will obviously have huge conflicts with his personal beliefs and quits almost exactly a year after enrolling. So around 1974 is when he begins living out his life as a kind of openly gay man, uh, cruising gay bars looking for not a hookup but a genuine conversation and connection and relationship with someone, which he does actually end up finding in David Galichan after he goes home with Nielsen one night and then suggests that they move in together and set up a home. So they eventually go house hunting together and end up settling at 195 Melrose Avenue, which will eventually go down as one of the most infamous addresses in British history. So after living together in relative happiness for two years, including buying a dog that they call Bleep, (laughs) which I just think is the cutest dog name ever. Bleep. Things sort of start to fizzle. So they're not having huge arguments. They're just kind of drifting apart. Yeah. So both men start bringing home other partners and eventually they just drift apart and the relationship breaks. It's in 1978 when Nielsen's loneliness peaks and he claims his first victim, who was unnamed until 2006, but was later able to be identified as, at the time, 14-year-old Stephen Dean Holmes. Stephen goes home with Nielsen on December 30th to drink. The two men drink themselves into unconsciousness and when Nielsen wakes, he's overcome with the desire to keep the boy with him forever, realizing that once Stephen wakes up, he'll go home and leave Nielsen forever. So he strangles him with his necktie and then finalizes his death by drowning him in a bucket of water. Nielsen then washes and dries the body and places uh, Stephen's body under the floorboards of the ground floor apartment where the body lies for seven and a half months. Shit. After this, Nielsen basically has terrified the shit out of himself because he's essentially escalated to murder really quickly. And... He takes no further action for several months and nearly a year goes by before he makes another killing. It's not premeditated at all. It's just kind of... No, and he maintains to this day that none of these were premeditated. Yeah, or even fantasized at this point. Yeah. So at this point, all he's been doing is he would sometimes position a mirror to be on a certain angle that he could lie down on the ground and masturbate over his own body, looking prone and still. Whoa. Wow. But at that stage, that had sort of been the escalation of his fantasies. Yeah. It's like the the idea of being dead. Yeah. There was also a few stories I read that while he was in the army, sometimes when him and his buddies would go out on big drinking binges, he, even though he was conscious, he would pretend to be unconscious in the hope that someone would 
try and Abuse have sex with him, him while he was unconscious. Of course, yeah. So in the periods between murders one and two, he does attempt to murder a young man called Andrew Ho, but after a struggle ensues, Ho thankfully gets away. However, in what is kind of fucked up, Andrew does actually report Nielsen's actions to the police, but no charges are ever laid from what I can see or even really investigated. So Nielsen's second victim is Canadian tourist Kenneth Ockenden, who was 26 at the time of his death. They meet in a bar, Kenneth goes home with Nielsen, and while listening to some music, Nielsen strangles him with the headphone cord and then disposes of his body in a very similar way, washing and dressing and then stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards of his apartment. During the time Kenneth's body is stored there, Nielsen routinely removes the corpse to sit him, like prop him up on his couch and watch TV with the corpse. He also takes photographs of Kenneth in sexually suggestive poses. Nielsen's third victim is Martin Duffy, who is 16 years old at the time of his death. He was vulnerable and homeless and accepts Nielsen's offer for a place to sleep. After a drink, Martin gets into bed to sleep and Nielsen strangles then drowns him, placing his body in a cupboard for two weeks before also placing him underneath the floorboards. Nielsen's fourth victim is Billy Sutherland, who is 27. He's murdered and disposed of in a similar way. Nielsen has been quoted as saying he doesn't actually remember killing Billy. He was so drunk he barely recalls strangling him and awakes the next morning to find his body. The next victim is Douglas Stewart, and this story is particularly interesting because Stewart survived and has reported the following events. He said he fell asleep in Nielsen's armchair and awoke to find his feet tied and Nielsen tightening a tie around his neck. Stewart fights, knocking Nielsen over, and then Nielsen tells him to leave. Again, this is reported to the police, but due to the fact that both Douglas and Nielsen are gay, when the police come, uh, Nielsen plays it off like a lover's spat. The police leave and Stuart doesn't follow up the report. As I said, homosexuality at this time has just been legalized in 1967, but only for men over 21 and only in private. But you can imagine the societal taboo that would still be around yeah, that. It seems like these still... officers don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, period. exactly. So the next, vi- the next victims come between the years of 1980 and 1981. Nielsen kills seven more men. Nielsen is unable to remember the names of any, uh, describing them to police as the following. A long-haired hippie, an emaciated young man, an Irishman, and a heavily tattooed skinhead. And then the four other men, which have never been identified. So it's at this stage that Nielsen has been trying to dispose of the bodies where he can, but there's not really a nice polite way to say this he's essentially running out of space so he creates a bonfire in the backyard and burns the remains that he hasn't already disposed of some of the vital organs he would basically toss over the fence of his backyard and then they would be eaten by rats or foxes overnight damn so in his intelligence because something i didn't mention before is many people have been saying as nilton has an above average iq he has a wherewithal to throw a tire onto these bonfires that he's making so the smell of burning flesh won't be noticed. You'll only be able to smell that. Because if you've ever smelt after a car makes a quick getaway and that gets the skids on the road, that smell of burning rubber yeah, is so it's strong. Overpowering. So overpowering. Yeah, that's actually very intelligent. And from what I was able to find at this stage, he has as many as half a dozen bodies in his apartment that he needs to burn. 
Think about that for a second. Half a dozen Half a dozen bodies that human he's bodies had stored in his cupboards, in suitcases, and underneath the floorboards of his house. So victim 11 is Malcolm Barlow, who is a 24-year-old orphan who has some developmental issues. Nielsen finds Barlow on the street, unable to stand due to the side effects of the epilepsy medication he was on. Nielsen actually calls an ambulance who come and then release Barlow the next day, who then returns back to Nielsen's house, I guess because being an orphan, Nielsen may have been the first person that was kind to him in ages. Yeah, and show them the compassion of trying to save his life, yeah. ironically. So Nielsen invites him in and then after drinking, Nielsen also kills Malcolm. So he's still at this same address that he lived in with his partner, and by now the stench of decay is just permeating the entire department apartment rather. So Nielsen sprays his room twice a day to try and rid it of the flies that are hatching from the corpses underneath his floorboards. Oh, and neighbors routinely complain about the smell, but Nielsen simply says it's an old building and it's just the damp and the mold of the old building. At this stage, Nielsen is also coming to loggerheads with his landlord, who wants him to move out, titling him as a troublesome tenant. Nielsen is offered a new apartment in Cranley Gardens, as well as a thousand pounds to move, and Nielsen accepts this. However, this move ultimately probably proved to be what caught him. So shortly after moving into Cranley Gardens, he meets Paul Nobbs. Paul goes home with Nielsen on Nielsen's 36th birthday. He goes to bed and falls asleep wakes up at around 2.30 a.m. with a headache, but goes back to sleep. And when he wakes up in the morning, he notices that he has bloodshot eyes and a big red mark across his throat. After Nielsen comments that he looks awful, Nobbs goes to the doctors and he's notified by the staff at the medical center that it's likely that he's been strangled, but he never reports the incident. Before his next victim on New Year's Eve of 1981, there is another attempted victim who thankfully escapes, which is Toshimitsu Ozawa. He tells police he thought Nielsen had intended to kill him, but police never follow this up. So this is, I think, three men three, now yeah, that have reported incidences. that this same man has like strangled or tried to kill them, and the police have still done nothing. Yeah. So six months after moving into 23 Cranley Gardens, John Howlett is lured back to Nielsen's house to continue drinking after a night out in the pub. Nielsen attempts to strangle the man and John fights back. At one point, Nielsen is quoted as saying that he believed John was going to overpower him, but sadly, Nielsen does succeed in strangling him and then drowns him in the bathroom when he notices that John's heart is still beating. Carl Stodder was potentially one of the most interesting of Nielsen's almost victims. After attempting to strangle Stodder after they went to sleep... Stodder wakes up and initially thinks that he's become entangled in his sheets and that Nielsen is trying to help him. However, when Nielsen carries him into the bathroom and attempts to drown him, Stodder cries for him to stop and eventually goes limp. Thinking that he's now dead, Nielsen carries Stodder to the couch and places him on it. And the Nielsen's dog, Bleep, jumps up and starts licking Stodder's face, which is when Nielsen realizes he's still alive. Yeah. Amazed that he's still alive, he actually takes Stodder into his bedroom, wraps him up in sheets, and nurses him back to consciousness. He tells Stodder that he'd been caught in the zipper of his sleeping bag and that Nielsen had saved him. Stodder leaves alive and never reports his encounter to the police until Nielsen is eventually arrested for the murders. Oh, that is fucked up. It's crazy, How hey? How do you spin that as he's been caught in his sleeping bag? 
I think when you're being, I guess, deprived of oxygen, it's all very fast and you don't know what's going on and yeah. you'd be half asleep as well. And it might also just be the whole sense of wanting to believe one narrative over the other, I guess. Oh, of course. Like you didn't want to believe that he's being forcibly drowned. Yeah. Wow. So Graham Allen is Nielsen's second last victim, another victim who Nielsen maintains he does not remember strangling. He was quoted as saying, I noticed he was sitting there and suddenly he appeared to be asleep or unconscious with a large piece of omelette hanging out of his mouth. At that point, I thought I'd strangled him, but I don't recall. He thought the man might have choked on the egg dish saying, if the omelette killed him, I don't know. However, Alan's body was found with a big ligature mark on his neck. So it's fairly obvious that Nielsen did kill him. So Stephen Sinclair would be Nielsen's last victim and partially contribute to him being caught. So Sinclair was to Nielsen living a, quote, sad life in that he took drugs and had casual sex with multiple men. So after going home with Nielsen, he makes the decision to end the, quote, pain of his life and strangles him to death with a tie. So after noticing clogged drain pipes, a plumber is called to Cranley Gardens and on the 5th of February 1983, Mike Catron is called to deal with it. After pulling apart the drainage, he finds what looks suspiciously like human flesh and bones and reports it to his supervisor. However, it is later in the afternoon, so they agree that they will come back tomorrow to look in the fresh light. However, when they return the next day, the drain cover is moved and most of the substances they saw yesterday have been removed. However, thankfully, there is a small amount of flesh and bones left. So they call the police, the police arrive, and they agree that it does look like human bones and flesh. And the plumber basically tells them because of where it is in the drain pipes, due to gravity, it must have come from the top apartment, which is Nielsen's apartment. So they wait for Nielsen to come home and go into his apartment. Upon entering the premises, the smell of rotting flesh is instantly noticeable and Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay looks Nielsen straight in the eye and says, stop messing about and tell me where the rest of the body is. Nielsen pauses and calmly and very nonchalantly responds in two plastic bags in the wardrobe next door. After the police check and confirm that what he said is true, Nielsen is arrested. At the police station... Oh, sorry. As the police and Nielsen drive to the station, the officer asks him if it was one body or two. Nielsen's response, 15 or 16 since 1978. Fuck. Can you imagine being that police, like thinking you've potentially come across, you know, a man who's killed his wife or he's had a quarrel with someone and then you've actually literally just stumbled across this serial killer yeah quite literally stumbled across a serial killer who's openly confessing to all 15 murders yeah so much like ed kemper nielsen just can't confess fast enough and he just loves giving the information that the police want so he gives the police graphic and incredibly detailed retails of the crimes as well as exactly where to look for any remaining evidence, despite him being cautioned not to by both his counsel and the police themselves. When police ask why he did what he did, Nielsen pauses and says, I'm hoping you will tell me that. He also maintains that his murders were never premeditated and he never had decided to kill any of his victims until it was already happening. 
His confession leads to an enormous dig up of the gardens at his previous address at Melrose Avenue to try and find any remains. But from what I can see, they've found very little, like partial bones and okay. there wasn't much left. So waiting for his while waiting for his trial, Nielsen fires his lawyer, Ronald Moss, and then reinstates him, but then fires him again near his trial and hires Ralph Himes who was the lawyer of a prisoner that Nielsen had fallen in love with, David Martin. Himes tries to go for the diminished capacity argument, and Nielsen, despite confessing in detail, pleads not guilty to all counts. On the eve of his trial, he was quoted as saying, I had judged myself more harshly than any court ever could. While on trial, Paul Nobbs, Douglas Stewart, and Carl Stodder, who were all survivors, all testify against him. And Nielsen was eventually found guilty of all counts and sentenced to life in prison and finally died in prison in 2018. So very recently. Wow. But everything you see about him, and I think one of the reasons why, aside from how awful his crimes are, why there's a whole docuseries about him is because as I said, you everyone you hear that was interviewed or had anything to do with him was just all quoted as saying how sort of affable and normal and like your regular Joe Blow he was. Like he just didn't seem like a serial killer. Like one story I read that said while he was testifying in court, he came across as so normal that at one point when he makes a joke about only having one tie left because he'd used the rest of his ties to strangle his victims, the jury and the audience in the court actually start laughing along with him because he's just so normal that they almost can't believe that he's done what he's done. Yeah. It's very, very interesting because I don't know of many, and we've researched quite a few, you know, serial killers and you know it's kind of part of our whole thing here really yeah we research serial killers to yeah to an extent (laughs) as much as we can but i don't think we've ever come across someone who just wasn't actively trying to not get caught yeah that's true like even ed camper at some point was burying bodies and heads and murdered his mother and then murdered her best friend in an attempt to make it look like it was a botched robbery. But then the guilt kind of took over him and he confessed and called the police. Yeah. But this was just like, he he didn't bury the bodies or dispose of the last body because of the idea of, I need to hide this body. It was like, I need to fucking get rid of this. Yeah. It's taken up so much space. Yeah. He didn't really seem like someone who wanted to get caught. But when he did get caught, he was like, okay. Yeah, and I think that I think you explained it perfectly that he was just a he was a certain type of um like arrogant, narcissistic person. Yeah. And I think he loved to tell his story and loved to kind of hear the analysis yeah. of his story. Well you can assume, I guess, if he genuinely believes that he was never going to kill any of his victims until he already did. He may have sort of had that idea that, oh, this is the last one. I'm not going to do this again. And then he, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it just not, came again. Not that, that that sounds like I'm like excusing his behavior. No, or not in no, any way. Of course. Um, 
but I'm just like, it's kind of that thing where you, I don't know. The only thing I can think that sort of half relates is when you break up with someone and you think, okay, we're done, but then you somehow end up back together yeah, and then no, you break no, up again. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Everything that we research has indicated that the killings that these serial killers attempt or and proceed with, they're all linked to an addiction and it stems from a desire to want to to stimulate stimulate your brain. Yeah. Like it's it starts with killing animals or setting fires or wetting your bed and then it starts with imagining that girl over there imagining her body her corpse dead. Yeah. And then it stems to fuck I'm going to do yeah, it. Yeah, I need kill it. to yeah. And then it happens and it's this well, from what we, what we understand it's pure bliss for them. And then yeah. they need to completely replicate it to whenever get that they can. Same. They yeah. can't was it stave it off. Jeffrey Dahmer that wanted his brain to be studied when he died? Was that Jeffrey Dahmer? Oh, that's a good question. I think it was either th- Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Kemper, or Ted Bundy. Ed Kemper said he wanted he he when he th- wanted a lobotomy, like he like a uh, Francis Farmer. He said. He yeah, said that I was. I think a- it was. I'm pretty sure it was Jeffrey Dahmer said he wanted his brain to be dissected and right. studied. I think Ed Kemper said to the extent of something to do with a lobotomy like Francis Farmer because he was a he he was um particularly interested in the the Francis Farmer story. But he also said when they asked him what his preferable method of uh punishment would be for the murders, he shrugged and said death by torture. Yeah. You know. Very unique fella. Uh, I think you might be thinking of the the comment that Kemper made, perhaps. No, it was a different... I, I can't remember. I, I'm sure it was Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, maybe we can save that for our super secret project we're working mm. on. Mm. Which, maybe. little hint that we can leave for uh, for that little thing. Perhaps. Are you gonna do it, or oh, was that was that the hint? Yeah, that was that was. Oh, the okay, hint. that was the hint. That's the hint. Okay. Is the fact that there's there's something that they can, they can link to it, right? So there's no ad break for this episode of the Best Serve Cold podcast. So we're just going to jump straight into jump right into it. The other story of this uh, episode. So um, as you can tell. Through the title again, this episode I'm beginning what could potentially be a three-part series into Charles Manson uh, and his cult, his fam- the Manson family, and the subsequent murders that resulted from the manipulation of said family. What's interesting is there's just so much detail to go into that I feel like it's going to, at the very least, it's going to be a two-parter for for Garrett, for sure. I think it might even be a three-parter. Oh, our first three-some. Yeah, three-some. <laughs> yeah, sure. And what better, like, a uh, topic to talk about for our, you know, our 10,000... Yeah, I forgot to mention special. that at the start. We cracked 10,000 downloads, which is just a, insane. like, insane yeah. number of people. Considering we just started this off on a whim... And we're just like, we just like sh- this stuff. Yeah. You know. It's nuts. 
But yeah, like uh, really excited to talk about this We're one. This doing one's Manson, been baby. This one's been asked about a few times, and it's definitely been one of the cases that we we've definitely wanted to jump into. So without further ado, I'm just going to do just that. So Charles Manson was the leader of what we come to know as the Manson family. He was their de facto leader, their, their the cultist leader, essentially. He was obsessed with inciting a race war that he believed was prophesied by the Beatles song Helter Skelter. Now, just briefly, we'll get into the victims because that's a new thing that I think we we like to do is like to yeah. list off the victims just to give them their their time to to remember who they were. So, in terms of the numbers of victims, there were nine, uh, ten if you include the infant, uh, sorry, the Sharon's. unborn child of Sharon Tate. So, just list off all the victims. There were Gary Allen Hinman, who was thirty four. Sharon Tate, who was 26, who was also eight and a half months pregnant at the time. Jay Sebring, 35. Wojciech Frakowski, 32. Abigail Folger, 25. Stephen Earl Parent, who was unfortunately 18 years of age at his death. Then there was Leno LaBianca, 44, and his wife Rosemary, 38. As well as uh, Donald Jerome Shorty Shea. Now, what's interesting I found about this was he was they uh, the, he was sentenced to death in ni- April 19, 1971. Just a quick little like side fact: in 1972, they were automatically commuted to a life imprisonment during the decision to, by the Supreme Court of California, where he was arrested and he, and some of the Manson families where they're arrested to temporarily uh, eliminated the state's penalty death penalty. Mm. So they on a whim, like a technicality, missed out on the death penalty and got life wow. imprisonment instead. So just a quick question that I want to know after you've done all your research. Sure. Would you classify Manson as a murderer? I find this Absolutely, yeah, for yeah? sure. Yeah, okay. I th- I think well um I'll get into it for sure. Because what I found from a few of the like true crime groups I'm on on Facebook is it's actually like a huge debate between people who say Charlie Manson is a murderer and some who say he's sure. not. So let me pose this question to you before we get into it. If I tell you and you're like essentially you're completely influential, you do anything I say and I know that for a fact that... I'm depraving you of food, water, you know, um, I'm giving you drugs. I know everything I tell you, you'll do. Yeah. I tell you to go, you know, outside and beat up the first person you see. Am I not then directly responsible yeah, for no, doing so? Yeah, very true. Even more so, some would argue, than the person who dealt with the beating. Because yeah. you are controlling the... Per- they're like a weapon at this point. Yeah. Uh, oh, they're a weapon. I like that's that. That's the way I tend to see it. And from what I'll get into, which I, this whole episode, I'm getting into the backstory of Charles Manson and his childhood. You get to a little insight into how he uses this manipulative attribute. Yeah, you were telling me you were telling me a little bit about this the other day. It was very yeah. interesting. So I guess we'll go into it a bit more when we, when we finish the, the story. But just to get uh, jump into the actual facts. So, full name, Charles Miles Manson, 
was born on November 12th, 1934 to a 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox and a 24-year-old transient laborer known only as Colonel Scott. Kathleen was great a, name. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. Just that's all you know. It's like a porno tag at this point. Colonel Scott. Yeah. Kathleen at this point was a sexually active teenager who drank way too much and earned money to fuel her habits by selling her body. The baby when it was first born was simply named No Name Maddox for a few weeks of its life until his mother settled on the name Charlie. So Charles never knew his father and he cleared out as soon as he heard his father cleared out as soon as he heard that Kathleen was pregnant. Kathleen was young, immature and unpredictable and way too unstable to to create a safe environment for a young child. She appeared to have no maternal instincts and would often leave the now very young child to fend for himself while she went off on one of her, you know, nights of promiscuity and drinking. As an adult, Charlie would often relate that this his mother was once in a in a cafe with him on her knee when the waitress offered to buy the baby from her. Kathleen's asking price was a pitcher of beer and having consumed it, she simply walked out and left Charlie to the woman. Oh my God. Like, can I just say though, oh my God, on the mother's part, but also what waitress just goes up and she's like, hey, can I buy your baby? Exactly, yeah. So that's, the, here's the thing. That's so fucked up on like both parts. The thing about that is there are... There are um, there his uncle picked him up four days four year, four days later, right? Uh, like tracked him down and returned him home. But he's a witness in this. But it's hard to say because Charles Manson is such an expert manipulative manipulative person that it could be a fabricated story. So it's, true it's to some extent. Yeah. So, so everything true. you hear about his backstory that isn't could, documented, right? Could be can a lie. Very well, be fictitious. Fictitious. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So according Julie noted. To, yes. So, uh, when Charlie was six years old, his mother and uncle decided to rob a gas station. They were both subsequently caught, convicted, and sent to five years in Moundsville State Prison. The now young uh, Charlie Manson was put into the care of his strictly religious grandparents. But after a few months, he went to live with his aunt and uncle in McMeckham, McMeckham, I believe, West Virginia. The environment was very different to anything Charlie had ever previously known. His aunt, unlike her sister, was regimented and disciplined. She was also very extremely religious. More so than his wife, Bill, uh, her, his aunt's husband, was way more stricter and disciplined in his faith than his wife. So he was a strict disciplinarian and he considered that Charlie was a sissy. Because mm. he was really little as well, wasn't he? Six years old around this stage. Yeah. So on his first day of school, this is his first day of school, he sent Charlie to his class, his first class, in a dress, a woman's dress, in order to teach him how to fight. Him, a six-year-old. A six-year-old boy. Right. He was apparently at this point a sissy. Yeah, fucking tops. Charlie soon adapted to this very different kind of life and actually grew to enjoy his new regimented routine. The two years between six and eight were looking to prove that they were the most stable years of his young life. So he was honestly, even though at this point, 
there's obviously some traumatic experiences happening. Yeah. He's actually showing some clear signs of having a normal life. Because anyone can bounce back from a pretty rough childhood. From strict disciplinary parents. Yeah. Yeah. But, unfortunately, his mother was released from prison and immediately took him back after two years of living with his aunt and uncle. Kathleen was now more unstable than ever. She preferred a life of sex, drugs, alcohol, and abuse to maternal domesticity. Sorry, that's a hard word to say. It's okay. I think that's the first word you've not been able to pronounce, and I've got like a running tally of Essentially just abuse to relationships uh, with her son. It's really interesting because it makes you wonder about the mindset of a of a mother who clearly doesn't want motherhood but obviously has some sort of very strong maternal instinct for her to want to take Charlie back. Yeah, and it kind of comes and goes as you you come to find. It's very strange, very very strange that but I, I think it comes into play with his whole mentality and the and the way he's he grows in the kind of man he becomes. Right. It okay. definitely stems be, be between this weird fluctuation with his mother. Yeah. So, at the age of nine, uh, Charlie had to drop out of school. I believe his mother couldn't afford it anymore. And just, it was basically because she was constantly in trouble with the law and had no money for food and board. They were constantly on the move around the Midwest. Mm. He never had one stable house his entire young life. The transient life that he was forced to live soon came to shape Charles. Uh, he kept to himself. He was living his life through his imagination, constantly watching, taking things in, and dreaming of a future free of his no-hope mother. He also learned how to become a very accomplished thief. At nine, Charlie was caught stealing and sent to a reform school. Three years later, he was caught again, and this time he was packed off to the Gabalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. Before he was taken away, Kathleen promised to him that he would visit she would visit, sorry. And, of course, do you think she ever did? Absolutely not. Just 10 months into his incarceration, Charles escaped. He robbed a grocery store to get some money, and then when his, all that money ran out, he stole other things, including a bike. He was caught stealing this bike and soon found himself back in confinement. This time, he was sent to an Indiana juvenile center. But after just two days... He stole some wire cutters and freed not just himself, but 30 other young boys. <laughs> great. <laughs> right? This time he escaped. Uh, he, when, he, when he escaped, he stole not only a bike, but a car. The 13-year-old could barely see over the steering wheel and was apprehended almost within a few hours of his escape. He ended up in juvenile court and he was surprised to see his mother, but... It wasn't a very happy reunion when she testified that she would not be taking him back in. The judge was somewhat sympathetic towards Charlie and sent him off to Father Flanagan's Boys Town. He stay here. He'd stay here for almost as short as his last incarceration, about four days. He ran off with another young offender named Blackie Nelson. They stole a car together and was and soon after crashed. Still, they made their way home to the home of Blackie's uncle, a World War II veteran and a figure of the underworld who gave the young boys free board and food in exchange for the proceeds they made from robberies and other 
small crimes that he made them commit. Jesus Christ. During, Just like role model after oh, role yeah. model. Tell me about it. And then you wonder why this guy turned out the way he did. So during their third robbery, the two boys were caught. This time, Charlie was sent to the Indiana School for Boys in Plainfield. He's, here he stayed for three years. Charlie would later claim that his small stature led him to be constantly raped and sodomized by other inmates, as well as the school employees. He also recalled that he was constantly picked on by the guards, who would continually find some sort of issue with him and beat him with leather straps and wooden clubs. Jesus. And this is where we kind of get into the psychological trauma of what happened to, you know, as if this whole you know, childhood isn't already fucked up. It gets yeah. much, much worse. Oh, excellent. Can't wait. One night after being gang raped by a group of older boys, he beat up one of his attackers to just short of the point of death with an iron bar as the young man was sleeping. He then placed the bar underneath the bed of another one of his attackers, in- implicating him as the attacker of that other boy. Smart. Charlie was now showing a trait that he would later become his signature as an adult. He would often hold his anger in for a short period of time only for it to explode in a frenzy of violence and uh, an uh, explosion of violence of sorts. Yeah. Over three years he spent at Plainfield, Charlie escaped no less than 18 times. He was returned every single time and in March 1951 his sentence was increased and he was also sent to a minimum security institution. He was sent to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. So, at this point, he's just constantly thrown around different institutions. Yeah. Things here were very different to what Charlie had known in Plainfield. The facility was well run, the boys were treated well, and a genuine focus was placed on rehabilitation of the young men. Charlie liked it there, but he had no interest in being rehabilitated and... He decided he would do his time, but as soon as he got out, he'd go straight back to his life of crime. At around the age of 15, Charlie was given a psychiatric assessment. He was found to be aggressive, antisocial, and illiterate. A caseworker reported that the boy was severely emotionally traumatized and in serious need of psychiatric treatment. It was also noted that he had a higher than normal aptitude for music. So on ape on sorry on October 24th 1951 Charlie was transferred to the Natural Bridge Honor Camp in Petersburg Virginia. 3 months later just weeks before his parole hearing he this time sodomized another inmate while holding a razor blade to his neck. So now he's showing that he fighting back is fighting back and he was now reclassified like, not in a good way. No. He was now reclassified as an extremely dangerous inmate and transferred to a tougher high-security facility, the Federal Reformatory at Petersburg, Virginia. After seven months at the Federal Reformatory, Charlie had racked up eight major violations. He was classified as defiantly homosexual, dangerous, and safe only under supervision with assaultive tendencies. Near the end of 1952, he was sent to another high-security facility, there, to the surprise of everybody, he actually was a model prisoner. Hmm. He took lessons in reading, math, and began to work in vehicle maintenance department. On January 1st, 1954, he was given a, uh, a meritorious service award for his, uh, his achievements in his studies. 
His uh, application to his studies and his uh, change of attitude led to Charlie being paroled on May 8th, 1954. He was put in care with his aunt and uncle, but within a month, the now 19-year-old was back living with his mother, having recently again been released from prison. It's so nuts that you hear all this and you kind of think, oh, this is someone who's like 30 to 40. You're like, no, he's not even 20 yet and he's... He's had all this happen 20. to him and done all this mm-hmm. horrible stuff. And he's had, he's fluctuating in his, in his personality and the way he is. So he's like, he, he's lived this life with a aggressive, sexually active woman who cares more about drinking and sex and robberies than her own son. And then he reforms to this life of crime and trying to find another figure to look up to. Yeah. And then he's incarcerated, constantly raped and beaten, fights back in the ways that he can and realizes that it works. Yeah. But then, you know, it's so strange because then he reforms out of nowhere. Yeah. And you think, is that another play? Is that another strategy? It kind of seems like it. could very well be. So... Six months after his release, Charlie married a waitress by the name of Rosalie Jean Willis. Soon after, they had a son, Charles Manson Jr. And at this time, Charlie was working a pretty low-income job that was being supported by his pay from stealing cars. He used one of the stolen cars to move his wife and his baby to Los Angeles. The car had been taken from Ohio and the authorities were able to track it down. Because he crossed state lines, he was charged with a federal crime. He received five years probation, but when he failed to show up to a subsequent hearing, he was later arrested. So with his probation revoked, Charlie was now sent to three years to the prison on Terminal Island in San Pedro, California. After being there for a few months, he was informed that his wife was now living with another man, and two years later, she obtained a decree of divorce. In September 1958, Charlie was released on five years parole. He was now extended to his criminal earning potential by becoming a pimp. He had a 16-year-old girl working for him at the time. Over the next year, he roamed around California to New Mexico, committing crimes and repeatedly coming before the law. In June 1960, he he fled to Laredo, Texas with a California warrant out for his arrest. When one of the girls he had working for him uh, as a prostitute was arrested, he was picked up and returned to LA to face a 10-year sentence for cashing a forged treasury check. Now at the age of 26, he was sent to the US penitentiary at McNeil Island, Washington. While serving his sentence, he learned to play the guitar and became interested in Scientology. During his time at McNeil Island, he also became obsessed with the Beatles. Charlie had uh, a pretty inflated sense of himself and his musical talents. He claimed that with the right backing and training, he would be even bigger than the Beatles. Charlie befriended another inmate by the name of Alvin Carpus. Alvin Carpus was once uh, public enemy number one and a former member of the infamous Mabaka gang. He taught Charlie how to play the steel guitar and later fueled to Charlie's musical obsession. In 1966, Charlie's prison record noted that he spent more of his free time writing songs than any other activity. 
I think at some point it said that he was he wrote up to around eighty to ninety different songs in a year. Jesus. Yeah. So Carpus later commented that uh, the Charlie he knew at the time was a master manipulator manipulator of other people. Prison authorities also noted that he had a tremendous drive to call attention to himself. In June 1966, Charles was sent out once again to Terminal Island, this time in preparation for an early release. When that release day arrived on March 21st, 1967, he had spent more than half of his 32 years behind bars. He requested the authorities let him stay in jail, but he was told that they ha- he had to leave. That's an insane amount of prison time for someone that age. 32... So that's around 16 years in jail. Yeah. Like nearly half your life spent incarcerated. Yeah. It's like, not just like you're 60 and you're coming out of like a 16-year sentence. Like this is a 32-year-old person. Yeah. That's nuts. Okay. So, uh, Charlie was now released from prison. He was... Uh, he, he was a gift of the gab wanderer uh, drifting into the hot Ashbury district of San Francisco with nothing but $35 in his pockets. He moved to an apartment in Berkeley and made money by panhandling. Before long, he he got him to know a 23-year-old assistant librarian at the UC Berkeley named Mary Brunner. He quickly charmed her and convinced her to, to let him move into her apartment. Brunner was completely under Charlie's spell and he even convinced her that they needed more people living in the apartment. So within a few months, and this is fucking messed up, Yeah, there were more than 18 young women living with him. Jesus. Charlie introduced Mary and other girls to drugs and long before Mary had quit her job become a and become a devout follower of Manson she was quick to take up the offer. With his now huge female entourage and his guitar, he was the epitome of San Francisco hippie culture in the summer of love. Yeah, was, he was like the poster child yeah, for it. Yeah, for sure. He, um, he, so with this whole summer of love persona, he decided to fully embrace it, became a spiritual master, guru, and prophet using mind control techniques to get the girls to do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Most of the girls, and this is what, what was interesting about the girls that flocked around him, they all came from troubled backgrounds and suffered several insecurities that led left them directly open to Charlie's manipulations. So, you know, father troubles, um, you know, beatings, assaults, yeah. no, author- no uh, authoritarian, um, as, as well as he, he was good at breaking down their, their inhibitions with mind control techniques using LSD and amphetamines. Uh, so after a few, maybe about nine months of living in and around San Francisco, Charlie began to hate the place. Uh, he was quoted as saying it had become too overrun with African-Americans and crime was rampant. Yeah, because I'm sure that's the African-Americans' yeah. problem and not you. Yeah, in case you were wondering, maybe Charles Manson isn't that bad of a guy. Uh, he's a bit yeah. of a dick. Yeah, he's... Um, yeah. So, the funny thing was, 
him and his family were probably the leading factor in this rise of crime. So at the time, they were stealing credit cards and using counterfeit money to get whatever they wanted. They even stole a yellow bus and painted it black. And this is what they would later on use to drive out to the desert of Mexico and Texas. Yeah. Uh, I think around about there is where I'm going to call it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's everything leading up to the Charles Manson cult family. Oh, okay. So that was everything about his background. So I think next episode, I want to get into uh, a bit more of the family, the people who joined a little bit of their background, why they were so easily able to be manipulated, Mm. um, the techniques that he used to manipulate them. uh, And then the, the crimes he would then use them for. But um, yeah, that's, that's essentially it. That's Charles Manson as a kid in, in a nutshell. And there's so much of his backstory that gets not glossed over, but like doesn't get talked about because obviously the the middle part of his story, like the family, yes, is is interesting enough on its own to discuss. So a lot of his backstory, I didn't know any of that. I think it's uh, with a lot of these cases, it's an often brushed over f- factor that what their backstory is and yeah. their childhood, and it's. For me, it's one of the most interesting parts of the stories is reading it and then finding all these like, oh shit, like similarities and like stresses that would later contribute to the way they would Yeah, that kind of shape the person that they are. So if you take any one of the several things that Charles Manson experienced in his young age between the age of when he was born to to 30 years of age... Any one of those things could set a person off. We would also both just like to clarify, we are not saying that it makes it okay no. to be a murderer because shit happens in your childhood. No, but I That's think it's very important to figure out why the fuck he did become yeah, a murderer. Yeah, it's also very interesting to look back into someone's backstory and kind of wonder what the trigger point was psychologically to sculpt them into the person that they are. Yeah. Or that they became, rather. So we know from Ed Kemper... From, uh, you know, nearly every single murderer we've encountered, or not encountered, rather, we've studied, you know, uh, uh, several killers like Ed Kemper, Brutus, there's been that whole thing of, like, a, a mother or a, a parental figure. Yeah, a significant like, relationship. Yeah, there's, there's been, like, they haven't wanted them. And of course, that makes sense because you think back on all the micro levels that our the way we act has been influenced by the significant relationships that we have in our yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously not in as horrific a way, but it, it's you can't deny that your childhood does shape the person that you become. Yeah, 100%. Like, like we often talk about the fact that like, you know, the hypothetical situ- situation of, like, letting... If you, if a couple letting a, a child go to school, it's like, where would you want them to go to school at? Where's a less likely place that would get bullied? And it's like, you run the you run the, the hypothetical, hypothetical situation of... But if a child does get bullied, you know, does that then make them 
a much more competent human being. Yeah. Does that then like accelerate something to do with their, you know, maybe the cerebral development or the way they develop their personalities? I mean, look, I know getting bullied in high school made me hella funny, so. Exactly. It may, but like you, you joke, but it really is a factor in establishing a personality that doesn't fucking suck. Well, it also, like, I, I strongly believe that me being, like, the loser in high school, because you you know me, I have a very quick, very sharp kind of, like, if you say something mean to me, I'll, like, clap back. Oh, yeah. And that definitely developed in high school with, like, the popular girls saying mean things because I had to, like, develop that sharp, funny wit to be able to, like, protect myself, like... Yeah. You've got to be able to fight back in your own ways. Exactly. Just and that's not murdering people. The thing that we kind of find in these cases, it's like, it's not so much a matter of one thing like that. It's a matter of several things as well as not anyone stepping in at the right time. And I think that's kind of why we don't get Jeffrey Dahmer's or Ed Kemper's anymore. You know, we, we have like spur of the moment shooters. Sure. Yeah, because there's we, a lot more mental health services to A, understand and B, help. There's a lot more people, people. stepping in. Yeah. That's that's the, 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 the simplest thing about it. We have so much more accessibility to help parents who would potentially create or mold a serial killer. Mm. There's things yeah, set up to help them. Yeah. You know... And, and as morbid as, as, as it sounds, abortion is becoming less of a taboo thing. Yeah. And mothers who aren't wanting to have families or ch- or children. They're given a choice. Exactly. Yeah. That's and a whole other thing, though. 100% yeah, we're sure. Not gonna, we're not going to touch on that Absolutely. today. Absolutely. I don't want... Yeah, we won't... We already have it. enough. But it's, it's an interesting <laughs> thing to think of, like, just these different avenues that we all sort of go on to and... Yeah, well, it's very interesting to be... One of our friends uh, linked us to a Joe Rogan podcast episode where he's talking to, like, a scientist that basically is involved in AI, I believe, and he was talking about how he honestly... This scientist honestly believes that we'll be living in a utopian society in, like, 30 years because psychologically we will have advanced enough to come to an understanding... Do you not, does that make sense? Yeah, like what no, I'm saying? absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think if you were to show the people of 1920 our world now... They would think we are so bizarre. Well, they would think that we're living in what would to them be some sort of dystopian universe. Very true. You know, a, a, a utopia of sorts. Very true. You know, like we have, a, a, like we have countries where, you know, people of color, it's still hairy for them, but there's... It's a world where they essentially are allowed to go to the same fucking bars as white people. Yeah, like and obviously there's miles like, to go. Exactly, but, but we've in also terms of the come, mileage spent yeah. between those two year, those two um, years. I would, I would love to hope that in thirty years we are going to live in a society. Oh where yeah, I think so can too. Just I accept think, people. I think as generations come and go. And as people educate themselves more and, and the, in the education itself becomes more readily available, I think yeah. that we, we're becoming better people. Just live your life. Like, live your own life. Live your bliss. Like, don't worry about what other people do. That's it. Leave other people alone. 
Um, so before we go, we rant on too much. Let's do the six we degrees. We have a six degrees of separation. separation. We had a lovely, one of our lovely listeners who is also called Laura submitted a story to us so we are going to play that and then we'll come back to have a quick chat about it lovely hi my name is laura i am from goose creek south carolina but nobody knows where that is so i just say i'm from charleston this is my six degrees of separation which is much closer than six degrees this is about my aunt carlene Carlene Conley. She was one of the nicest people I've ever met, besides my mother. They're both very soft-spoken, educated, could even say practical, <laughs> funny, of just the sweetest people and hardworking that I've ever met in my life. We're going to go back in time a little bit to give you some perspective. I did not grow up in the same state or city as my aunt. She's my only aunt on my mother's side. Uh, so Anne, Ginger, and Paige, they didn't really see me a whole bunch. I think we've seen each other maybe 10 to 15 times. Even though we were so far apart distance wise. I still felt pretty close to my aunt Carlene. She would call my mom on Sundays and they would have their hour long conversations. They did Bible study together. They just talked and it was really nice to see my mom and her sister being able to have that type of relationship. In 2010, my aunt Carlene and Paige came to Goose Creek to visit my mom. I don't remember exactly why. I want to say it was a holiday. Could totally be wrong, though. Um, the first night that they were there, Paige was unpacking her clothes, and I was standing in the room with Paige, and she said she wanted to go downtown Charleston, and I was like, heck yeah, let's go. And <laughs> we went downtown. We got up to the bar. I was ordering my drinks, and all of a sudden, she didn't have any money. She had like $3, and I questioned her, and I was like, why do you only have $3 whenever you were the one who wanted to come downtown? So I don't know how she Houdini'd it, but she did. She got some guys to just buy her drinks, and the next thing I knew, I was on my second drink, and she was just hammered. So, that's whenever the fiasco kind of starts with Paige and I. Prior to this, I never knew this side of Paige. She was running away from me. I was trying to kind of like wrangle her in. She tried to fight a police officer. She tried to fight me in the parking garage because she was crying and saying that I was trying to leave her, which I wasn't. I was trying to get her into the vehicle so that we could leave. Um, Charleston is 30 minutes away from Goose Creek. So we were in the car for a good amount of time. And Paige was sitting there quiet in my seat. Not saying a word. No expressions on her face. And 
I was playing Jack Johnson on my radio. And if anybody knows Jack Johnson, it's the most mellow music you could possibly have. Um, she kept turning it off. And I asked her, do you have a headache? Do you not feel well? Because I'll turn the music off if you don't feel well. She didn't say anything, so I turned it back on. And then she would turn it off. And then I would ask her again, do you not feel good? Do you, does your head hurt? She just got mad. I would turn it back on. She would turn it back off. I turned down the road. This At this time, it was about I was five minutes away from my mother's house. Turned down the road. And then all of a sudden, Paige just sucker punches me in my face. I was going 25 miles per hour. Thankfully, I took my foot off the gas and started putting it on the brake. And the car behind me noticed what was happening in the vehicle. Paige was punching me in the face. She was kicking me. She kicked me several times before I could get the car pulled over. And that's whenever I ended up punching her and throwing her out my car. And then whenever I got back in the car, she was back in the car, quiet and sitting there. So I made it all the way home. I had already called my mom at this point. So my mom, my Aunt Carlene, and my stepfather were all outside waiting for us. And I was escorted into my mother's bedroom, given a bag of ice. My Aunt Carlene walks up to me. She sees my black eye. Paige was in the kitchen, apparently, with a knife to her throat, saying that she didn't do anything to me. And it was at that time that we all saw what Paige was capable of doing. We never really knew that. We always thought she just kind of did petty stuff like lie and steal. But this was more severe than any of us thought. So my aunt decided that she would just take Paige home. Now, they had just gotten there from, I believe she lived in Ohio at that time. I could be wrong. She could have lived in Kentucky. Um, But they had just gotten there and she, it was only a few hours that had passed that they had gotten there. And she was already in the car with Paige and taking her. And I remember my mother saying to her, if she can do this to Laura, she can do anything to you. We did end up talking to my aunt the next day, just making sure that she got home. And she told us that Paige had opened the door several times, trying to get out of her vehicle while it was running. And my mom, again, told her that Paige is capable of hurting her. And if she's not careful, Paige could kill her. So at this point, the entire family knows what Paige has done to me. There's a huge issue throughout the family. I stopped talking to Paige until, like, I think it was like a few years later that I was just like, okay, whatever. She apologized. I don't see her, so it's not really affecting me to hold this baggage. So I was okay with talking to her again. Then March 14th, 2015 happened. That was the day that evil touched my entire family. I got a call from my mother telling me that Paige had killed my Aunt Carlene. Paige stabbed her mother, my aunt, 77 times. She cut her 
27 times and she bit her twice. I have no words. I am sharing my story just in case there is a person out there that is in an abusive relationship. You need to be selfish. You need to think of yourself. Think of other people that love you. This can happen to anybody. Paige was her daughter. My Aunt Carlene went into severe debt taking care of Paige, her adult daughter. March 14th, 2015 was Paige's 37th birthday. She was an adult. This was her mother, a mother who did absolutely everything for Paige. She made sure Paige had a home, care, food, medical stuff. She literally took care of Paige because Paige could not take care of herself. Later on, after my Aunt Carlene died, we found out that she was being abused for many years. We did not know how serious it was with Paige hitting her. So I'm telling this story again as a warning for people. If somebody is abusing you, please be selfish. Please find help. There are many outlets for people that are in your shoes. I don't want anybody else to end up like my aunt. Such a sweet person to be taken away so brutally and so quickly from our lives. Again, if you are in an abusive relationship, please be courageous and just take that step and leave. You never know what they're capable of doing. Paige was Carlene's daughter. Her daughter did this to her. I urge you to find help. Get out of that relationship, no matter who it is. So that's my six degrees of separation, which is much closer than six degrees story. And a warning for those being abused. You are beautiful. You are loved. And I hope that you find the help that you need. Oh, oh my goodness. Wow. That was, um, I mean, we've... We listened to these stories. We've had a couple of the six degrees of separation stories submitted now. And I think this is the second one we've had where it's been someone close and personal, like a family member Within that's been family. killed. But that was, um, thank you so much to Laura for submitting that story. Yeah, we, God bless you. We love you, Laura. And we, we were so proud of you that you were able to reach out and tell the story and even have a, a powerful message to tip it off with as and well. we feel like very blessed that we get to that like people trust us to yeah. to post these but to to uh reiterate what laura said in her story if you are someone who is experiencing any sort of domestic violence in if you haven't noticed before in all of our show notes we do actually include uh three they are Australian links, but we do include three links. One of them is to a mental health organization called Beyond Blue, and the other is to a, a white ribbon organization, which is all about helping people find domestic violence support. So those links are in all of our show notes. 
yeah. if you do need help. They and are, as I said, they are Australian based. But yeah, um, and but we are we are a part of a not uh, in terms of a branding thing, but we are a part of a family of podcasters. So any of our you know friends on Twitter that we often retweet or retweet our stuff, they also some of them are American and they. Um, probably know better institutions that for you know different different uh, counties and uh, states. You know, yeah, it's just worthwhile reaching out. But um, yeah, thank you so much, Laura. That is such a. And I think uh, it's beautiful that you've taken a a really lovely message of hope, yeah. I guess, from something that really awful that's happened to you personally. Yeah. So yeah, Oof. thank you so much for that story. Um, and also, just thank you so much for your service. I think I read that you were a hospital worker as well, which is just during this time. Yes. it's you know incredible. All you really are workers. just a, a hero to us, and we thank you for reaching out and telling your I story. I would actually like love to say if you are someone who listens to this podcast and works in the medical field, please like send us a message because I'd love to like PayPal you a coffee. Or yeah, yeah. Venmo or totally. whatever we can organize in whatever country you're in. But if you're someone that works as a nurse, as a doctor, I'd love to shout you a coffee. So yeah. please get in contact with us. Absolutely. Well, there, there's, um, yeah, we're, we're struggling to transition from from the story. But uh, yeah, thank you again, Laura. If you, that, yeah. if you... Uh, someone who has a six degree separation, or in this case, a, a really a zero degrees yeah. of separation, please reach out to us on our socials. Um, we also have a Gmail, which we can. Yeah, our plug. email address is best served cold podcast at gmail.com if you did want to reach out. I also have had a few people say that they don't want to record the stories but are happy to submit them typed yeah, absolutely yeah. so we're always happy to read them out if you're not comfortable doing your own recording we can always i mean we're pretty we're pretty used to speaking into a microphone now yeah. so if you wanted to submit your stories type them out and then we can narrate them for you we're and happy to do that as perfectly well perfectly fine uh let's Shall we talk about what we're grateful let's for this talk about week what we're grateful for this week what are you grateful for tama uh i'm grateful for life to be honest yeah that's my i'm just grateful to honestly this whole week's been kind of an eye-opener in terms of the how grateful i am to be in the situation i am just yeah have the people around me that i do have yeah and, for sure you know I, i've talked about it before but my um my grandpa was in hospital maybe a year or so ago from uh lung cancer and it's actually in survived and is in remission right now and I'm just so grateful to to still have him in my life and you know it's it's been a one of those kind of weeks where you just have like an existential understanding yeah for you sure know? i feel like i'm very um grateful for the small things this week like it sounds sometimes i think it's nice to just have an appreciation for something really little that you sometimes take for granted that other people don't have yeah like it sounds so silly but after having such a shite sleep on monday night i've just genuinely been so grateful to have like a comfy bed and like a safe house and a nice pillow and like a warm doona 
to sleep and be safe and have a good night's sleep. It's very grounding to have that realization of, oh shit, in terms of this, I actually have a pretty decent life. Oh, 100%. You know, and that doesn't negate the whole idea of mental health. Like mental health is just such a... Well, that's the thing. thing. Like, mental health just removes any sort of perspective that you could have. It does, yeah. It does. But I think it also, in turn, helps you to appreciate the fact that, you know, you do have it pretty well in life. And when things are good, they're amazing. You know, it, it, it gives you perspective after the fact, essentially, I guess. I did. Um, I did want to have a quick segue, seeing how we're in the Ooh, sort of, the sort of banter section okay. of the show. I realized that despite the fact that we talk a lot about our cats, and I believe there are some photos floating around on social media, but I think I'm maybe going to like do some little headshots. I just wanted to like quickly chat you through the unspoken members of the P- BSC oh, yeah. podcast team, our cats. So we've got. We have three cats. We have Pie, Toffee, and Peach. It started accidentally as a food-related thing, and then it just kind of stuck. So Pie is a black and white tuxedo ragdoll. He is such a doofus. <laughs> he was the first. He is the first of the brood. I got him before Tara and I met in twenty six. Start of twenty sixteen. Yeah. And he's a rescue and he's big and he's fluffy and he's got a little like soul patch on his chin and he's the typical lazy food yeah. life revolves around sleeping the, and eating. The loudest of the bunch. Oh, he never shuts up. Yeah. He's so vocal. Just every morning when he knows he's about to be fed, it's like As soon as you stir in bed, he's yeah. like, They're up. Yeah. <laughs> They're they up have arisen. It the is time to consume. He's so food orientated. So he's the oldest. And then we have Toffee, who is a tricolor calico. And she will be four in November. Is that what she is? A tricolor? Tricolor calico. I thought she was a tortie. No, she's not a tortie. So like black and tan. Right. She's a tricolor calico. Wow, that is... A mouthful That's, to say. It's also very elegant and it's very on brand. It's very for her on brand for her. She's the most aesthetic hashtag aesthetic cat you've yeah, ever seen. She's like, a beautiful. She's cat. so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, she's also all all three of our cats are rescues. They're all from that. Yeah. Um, not the RSPCA, but they're all from rescue organizations. So Toffee is quite possibly the strangest cat <laughs> I have ever met. She's very smell orientated, so if you meet her, she wants to get up right in your eyeball and smell your eye. It's the weirdest thing ever. She also will not drink out of a bowl. She, <laughs> we recently had to buy her like a little water fountain because she won't drink out of just a bowl of water. It has yeah. to be running water. Either that or a sink. You know, or a she, sink yeah. where you turn the tap on. And then we have little Peachy who is the newest addition to our tribe. She is a tiny little Bitsa baby, and she is a Abyssinian ticked tabby. Yeah, that and, and also a really cool name. She's just weird as well. She has a weird water thing where she won't drink out of the bowl. She has to put her foot in the bowl and then lick the water off her foot. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that seems like a hassle, but whatever, as long as you're happy, babe. She was one of those cats where you get in the first few days. She doesn't really show some... uh, She was also like a... She was was a baby. A baby. Um, I think there was a mix-up with her age at the pound 
So the rescue organization we got her for, got her from rather, got her from the pound. And when we got her, she was supposedly 13 weeks. Needless to say, she was not Much even younger. close to that. Yeah. And so, she was yeah. like the size of a freaking shoe when we got her. And it took her a while to sort of like get a personality. And then once she got it, she's just nothing, anything but a small personality. Just loud, obnoxious, <laughs> zoomies, you know, the whole fucking y- yeah. nine yards. But and yeah, I just sort of do like a well. unofficial Yeah, uh, if you want pictures, you know, pics or it didn't happen, let it hit us up and we'll send you a cheeky snap. Uh, you know. I think actually people. someone messaged us on our Instagram saying that they liked the cats and I just sent them like 20 photos of them. And yeah. I was like, hee hee. So you like cats, do you? I hope that's what you wanted. <laughs> Here's 50 photos. <laughs> Never mess up with the crazy, crazy cat lady. Yeah, I love my babies. Uh, do we want to give a quick shout out to the people who got the code last episode? Yes. So uh, we, we got the usual, sorry, excuse me, the usuals, which are Matt Stapleton and Josh McDonald. Thank you, boys. So I think uh, we had Kaylee Strike. Thank you, Kaylee. Who gave us the code word. And I, you just put me under pressure. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was not prepared for this. That's okay. Just you find them. I think we, we yeah, we only had a, few, a handful of them. There might have been like one on Facebook, one on Instagram, um, one on, I don't think we've got any on Twitter yet. Tweet us the, the code words. We're severely lacking on Twitter. I'm sure there's more and I'm so sorry if you sent it in and I can't find it. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot to write them down. I'm really sorry. That's the main ones. Uh, if you did send us a code word, we are, you know, the team of two people. Uh, and we didn't read your name out, hit us up and we'll read it out in the next episode. Um, or any possible future other types of content mm, that might be that coming That may be out. coming your way. Yeah. Mm, what are we up to? You'll never know. Until it comes out. Ooh. We do have some changes coming as of next week, though, which we're very excited about. Yeah. We have a slight schedule change with the main episodes just to give you guys a couple more weekdays to enjoy the show before the weekend inevitably comes and people forget that we exist. Exactly. Uh, so we have a schedule change as well as some bonus content. Yeah, that's right. If you, so, you thought you were done with us, here's another fucking guess show. Guess what, motherfuckers? <laughs> we're never leaving. That's no, right. No, so we will have three episodes a week. Yep, that's oh it. Oh my God. Just to clarify, it's not three main size episodes. No. So we're going to have the main episode and then we're going to have our mini-sodes talking about um, police brutality crimes are back and then we're going to have another little sort of afterthoughts show. Yeah. Which... So, I think it's looking like Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule at yeah. this point. In terms of Australia, I mean, it might be the day after for America and Canada and all those kinds of places. But, you know, obviously you'll see when but it comes But we're excited. Up. We're yeah. excited, especially for the afterthoughts show because it's a little bit less structured yeah so it's not going to be we're not going to go into cases as we do on the main show it'll be mostly like we pick up on things we might have missed out on or you know any corrections so say for example the golden state killer had his uh trial this year 
and he was actually officially sentenced, things like yeah, that. Yeah, things like um, that. Any corrections, any yeah. current news stories. And if you, oh, if you have any questions yes, for Q&As. us that you would like us to answer, um, feel free to shoot them through to us and we'll answer them on the show. 100%. 150%. Wow. But I think that's pretty much all from us here at the team at Best Served Cold. <laughs> that was very professional of me. Extremely professional. Um, yeah, I don't have any other. I don't have anything other things. Uh, again, we are on. Uh, co- do we end up coming up like finding out if it's coffee or Ko-Fi? I'm oh. going to keep calling it Ko-Fi. Anyway, there's a there's a basically a support platform called Ko-Fi, which you can donate very small amounts, uh, starting from three dollars to the show, just to you know support the show. In a financial way, the link is in our show notes, and we are the BSC podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And yeah, I think that's about it from me. It. Everyone here is pretty tired. All our little kittens have joined all us. The and all the cats very... have come into the room. They're yeah. all going to sleep. Oh, uh, check out Des on. Yes. If you're in Australia, it's on Stan. If you're in America, I believe it's on Hulu. Hulu. And I think it might be on the BBC for the UK, but I'm not 100% sure. But look it up. It's just Des, D E S, starring David Tennant. We've watched one episode. It's really, really good. And if you'd like to know more, I guess, about uh, Dennis Nielsen, particularly the investigation and trial, then it's a good place to start. Because from what I can see so far, they've done a pretty good, pretty factually accurate yeah, job. Yeah, seems to be right on the nose, right on the buttons there. Right on that button. Right on that little button right there. Well, I think that's all from us. I'm going to go and dye my hair for the oh, second yeah. time this week. <laughs> Yeah, it's really gotten a little bit psychotic in the household, hasn't it? Oh, it has not. I haven't <laughs> dyed my hair for a very long time. Yeah. I've done very well. Yeah, At least I'm not well. shaving it off. Yeah, yeah. That was a weird thing for some reason. I was like... What? When people, did I ever shave my hair? No, no, I'm, I'm saying oh. it was weird that people were doing that. Like, like you're like a fucking rat trapped in a... I think it's just like people got weird in quarantine and they were like, well, I'm not leaving the house, so why not shave my fucking head? Which, more power to you, if I'm being honest. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, did you try making bread? (laughs) You know? Did you try making kombucha? I think it's safe to say if you're at the point of shaving your head, you've done all of those things. Maybe, yeah. But, yeah, thanks for joining us. We love you all very much. And we'll see you next week for another... Episode. Uh, bye. bye.